While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Looking just kind of in the middle distance, <laughs> at nothing like, in particular. Half your half your face isn't in the frame. Because I have to lean into this mic. Because you yell at me if I don't lean into the mic. That's true. I do do that. You do do that. What are you? Are you looking at your phone right now? Yes. How is it? Why? It's a phone. <laughs> My book is on it. <laughs> so. Has that gotten easier? Has that gotten better? Reading reading books on the phone. You you dig it okay? You've been doing that for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, I like it pretty good. Um, I do, a, especially in a book like the one I read this week. It's really helpful to be able to highlight stuff and come back to it, even if we don't like use it to refer in the show. It's just like highlighting it makes it stick more in my mind because I've read it. You know the the time that it took to read it the first time, and then the time that it took to read it again as I highlighted it. So, all right, <laughs> repetition is key to learning. Do you get distracted? Do you get like your tweets while you're reading? Um, you can turn on do not disturb mode if you want. I read a lot of this one on a plane, so you know I had it in airplane mode anyway. Is that a real thing? Do, do we have to worry? We don't have to worry about that, right? I think they're like, actually um, working to relax those regulations a little bit. So I think I think you'll still have to have it in airplane mode, like not transmitting anything, but. I think we're getting to a point where some portable electronics might be. But what about planes with Wi-Fi? Takeoff? Is it just during is it just during takeoff? Why is that the problem? I don't. I mean, it's it's like people were nervous about it, and so it's a regulation. Like it's as far as I know, and I'm just talking based on like articles that I've read. There is no real clear like technological reason if they needed to. And I, I'm just. I'm totally making stuff up right now. Yeah, I love it. I think it's Make up more technology. I think it's easier to shield the cockpit and, what the are you saying? and stuff from from Wi-Fi signals. Yeah, sure. Than other stuff that was made to travel further. Yeah. Can I'm we hurting myself like <laughs> making up all this stuff right now? <clears throat> all right. Well, should we start the show? Okay, let's start the show before I make up any more plain facts. <laughs> All right, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew, plain and we're expert. all about plain facts here on Overdue. <laughs> Do you know any more plain facts, Andrew? Knowing plain facts has not been a barrier to my <laughs> spouting talking about plain facts so far. <laughs> I don't know why I need to know them a before plain I start talking I, about them. A plain fact that I sort of know is the one about why airplane food tastes so bad. It has something to do with your nose at that altitude. <laughs> Can you be any more specific than that at all? Something about the air pressure and it affecting like your taste receptors or the interplay between your nose and your taste buds, something like that. Something about being up that high in the sky. I don't know. I think that's that's propaganda from big plane. Big like plane. I, 
I think there's only big plane. Is there like, a little I'm, plane? I think there are small planes. Indie plane. Um, I was into that. But plane like, if I bring, off. if I bring a tasty, tasty granola bar on a plane, and I eat it on a plane, it still tastes good. It tastes like it does on the ground. It doesn't automatically become some like garbage bar. I think that that sounds made up. <laughs> okay, that's bunk. <laughs> Let's, myth busted. Let's myth. Let's bust some. Let's myth some other busts on this show. Andrew, what did you read this week? <laughs> I busted. Um, Don't go back to school by Keo Stark. It's a like a crowdfunded, uh, like a Kickstarter backed book, full of interviews about um, people who have found professional success without going through like the traditional. Um, graduate school and sometimes even like undergraduate and high school level you know formal education all right well before we dive into the book itself do you know anything about it's like kickstarter why do you think it was something that was crowdfunded um you know i don't i don't know except to except to say and this is gonna i'm gonna make up some more facts here yeah book facts that's just how we roll um i i think it's kind of becoming a zeitgeist am i using that word correctly to like it's it's becoming a thing to push back against formal education in the wake of like oh all okay. the student loan debt and all the like all the underemployed and unemployed recent college grads like i i think that people are starting to look for other ways to make you know to get where they want to go mm-hmm and I think this probably taps into that. And it wasn't like a huge, like when you hear about the huge Kickstarters, they're usually for technology stuff. It's usually like software, hardware, video games, um, things like that. I mean, the Veronica I think this Mars was, movie, yeah, or like Zach Braff's movie, where yeah. you can like you can help an incredibly rich man attain his dream of making a sequel to Garden State. Zach Braff's new film, My iPod Collection, Garden State Two, yeah, starring Zach Braff. <laughs> But yeah, okay. I think it, it um it, it was not a huge Kickstarter. I think it was like fifteen hundred backers or something like that, which I think was more. Those are figures you would see more commonly, and probably still do see in the in like art stuff that gets founded. Like I yeah, know yeah. you you put up a play once that yep um was financed partially by Kickstarter. Yep, and. It was very small scale, but it got you guys like money that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. Yeah, it basically paid for the main costs were the rental of space, which is always a huge uh, money sink for yeah. uh, for plays that you're producing without you know a conventional theatrical home. Yeah, um, and if I can get off on a Kickstarter tangent, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that I do. That's the kind of stuff that I really think. Kickstarter is good for I, when you hear about these really big technology things a lot of the time or at least some of the time it's about like previous previously established people using it to like reduce risk yeah that's what it becomes right and get funding for stuff that they wanted to make anyway but now they don't have to make it first and like put up with the possibility that it might fail and they might lose money you know well yeah because you you get a bunch of for the, for a lot of them one of the earlier reward tiers is a copy of whatever thing you made yeah so if you're saying well i'll make this you know i'll make this software that everyone's going to really love 
and everyone respects me already, so they're going to give me money up front, and 20 bucks gives you a copy of it, well, then it doesn't have to be good at all. Like, Yeah, it's, it's like a glorified pre-order system, too. Yeah. Like, I don't know. You're just... Uh, it's I have I have a lot of problems with people who who take to Kickstarter and do that, and I also think there needs to be some word that we invent that describes Kickstarter projects that you backed a long time ago, but you've like long since lost interest. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I've I've backed a couple Kickstarters for like artist friends of mine, and that makes sense for me because like that's basically like a conventional donation, right? Yeah. Like I respect this person's work, and it doesn't have the same commercial value that something in the tech sphere it does usually. Mm-hmm. And that that might be the biggest kind of dividing line between Kickstarters is kind of what you're saying is if it's artistic, it might have some sort of <clears throat> intrinsic value that has nothing to do with the monetary value, you know, um, that I think inspires people to give differently. And I actually just backed recently. Uh, a project to record and then release all of the works of Chopin for free mm-hmm. and have it be like royalty free so people can use it. Um, it's like a, it's basically a sequel to a previously successful uh, classical music Kickstarter um, that did a similar thing. And I like Chopin a lot, so I thought that sounded like a good idea. Yeah, I mean that that stuff's really cool because that. Um... <clears throat> Like especially as I've done some video stuff for work, like you want to find, you want to find background tracks and stuff that you can use without having to pay royalties. And yeah, it can be really hard to find actual musicians recording some of that classical stuff instead of just like midis or whatever, or like Steve in his garage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so to this actual book that you think. It was probably it was a successful Kickstarter because it kind of tapped into some of the internet zeitgeist surrounding higher education. I mean that that makes the most sense. Again, this is this is something that I'm I'm just I'm just spitballing, pulling out of the air. But it seems like a pretty plausible explanation. And this is I mean usually for the show we read novels and and things with stories, I mm-hmm. guess. And this that's there is. There are like story threads here. I mean, it's it's a collection of twenty something interviews, um, along with the author's own conclusions about things. Wait, do you so, mean, I mean like are... twenty and a handful interviews, or interviews with twenty somethings? No, um, twenty and a handful <laughs> interviews. I think she did like ninety, <laughs> okay. and then cut it down to twenty six or twenty seven. Okay, for the book. Um, and who and are these yeah, people? It's, it's it's a book that I wanted to read for this show because I I thought we would have a good conversation about it because it's it's both like you and I have both kind of lived the life that a lot of people or are living the life in are in the process of living the life that a lot of the people in this book are mm. where we went to we went to undergrad we have like we have some formal education but everything else after that has kind of been you know built off of our own hobbies and experiences and and um chasing things that like technically we're not um qualified to do but we haven't let it stop us i guess <laughs> yeah sure i thought we would have a good talk about this as yeah well. okay well let's start with the book because i think okay I, I think it'll be easier for us to kind of relate our own experiences to the book who is the woman who wrote the book can we talk about that do you know anything about her vis-a-vis the book itself 
Um, no, not really. Um, she, she, <laughs> well, I think that happens in a lot of interview books, right? Is, is, um, the interviewer herself stays out of it except, and here's the one thing about the book that sort of bugged me while you're laughing at me still. Okay. Um, is I, I think that there's some confirmation bias going on. I was going to ask about stuff like that, but so A let's dive bit. in. Yeah. Like there are some concessions to why institutionalized learning is successful, but I mean, she's not, she's not going out to answer the question, you know, is, is school good or bad? The book starts up front with the assumption that institutionalized learning is broken, which I think is not a hard argument to make. Yeah. And, and then says, okay, so assuming that is true, what have people done or like, what are people doing to find their way forward? So are all of the chapters in the first person from like the voice of whoever she was corresponding with? Yeah, and okay. they're they're grouped into fields. So you have like a field for journalism, you have one for like business, you have one for people who have made it in like the performing arts mm-hmm. or or just the, you know, the regular arts. <laughs> <laughs> Can you draw that line for me, Andrew? What are those? There's <laughs> the performing arts which is like two and a half men, like people up on stage doing stuff with their bodies and then there are the regular arts which is people painting trees <laughs> people so, you need to laugh louder so well, people know what <laughs> I did I couldn't so wait so it's John Cryer or Bob Ross that those yeah. are the arts yeah those okay. are the two schools of art <laughs> Welcome to the John Cryer School of the Performing Arts. Uh, and you can walk across our adjoining uh, Charlie Sheen Memorial Walkway into the Bob Ross School for Art and Design. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> what are, Were there any other fields? Was there a fourth field? Was it like cooking? What was it? Um, Tech? Writing? I mean, just like more general, generalized writing. There was one... There was one uh, lady in particular who she and her husband make um, composting toilets, which I guess is like a toilet that reuses what you put into it. And does what with it? What do you mean reuses it? Like it makes it into fertilizer or like composts it. Does it have a direct conduit to my yard? I don't know. It's (laughs) like she talked a lot about how she learned about composting toilets and how she hooked up with other people who knew about it and how she learned how to navigate like the regulatory waters. Wait, no. not a whole lot about <laughs> the regulatory about waters, the process yeah. of, of what, just what exactly the toilets do. I think that's left up to the reason. So these are Etsy toilets research. is what you're saying. Basically. Yeah. Like Etsy hand, hand knit, <laughs> hand knit compost toilets. <laughs> So I was going to ask uh, if there were any of these stories that you wanted to call shenanigans on. Like, are there any that you think are either pure luck or don't really back up the thesis? Um, I would say, I mean, I would say not. Okay. Um, 
Well, because the thing about the thing about luck, and I think that you could probably speak to this yep. too, is that what some people like. I think I have been really lucky in my in my like career path because I was doing IT for a while, and it was like okay, but I was kind of bored with it, and I was writing on the side, and then this full-time job that I wasn't quite qualified for opened up and I applied for it and it happened to turn into a full-time thing. Yeah. And like your path through, through like local Philly through like the Philly drama scene has been one of starting at the bottom and kind of working your way up both because you've been acquiring experience, but both, but, but also because you're, um, I don't know, you're willing to go out on a limb a little and challenge yourself to to do like set building and, and stuff Let that me, you don't really have any formal training in. Yeah, there are some people I think I think I've gotten a couple listeners uh from Philly who are listening to this. Um and I will I will totally cop to the fact that the only reason that I have carpentry skills <laughs> and uh in in Philadelphia theater is that one day at the theater that I'd been uh, hired to run sound for and was looking to work artistically, uh, they needed someone to help come in and clean the space before, like, an audience performance, right? So then I'm just Mm -hmm. in the room, like, setting up chairs and cleaning and stuff. And then that put me on the books for then they could just call me in again when they needed some help building something. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of stuck around (laughs) Um, (laughs) and developed a good relationship. I think the most important thing was that I developed good relationships uh, with the people who still work there now in that department. Like I think every, for the theater I work for, I've been very lucky to find people I get along with really well Mm -hmm. and are willing to invest in me or willing to, you know, take a little bit of time to teach me something once and then, kind of let me go you know teach me to fish and then let me go catch my own food later yeah um, kind and of that's thing. that's actually a great that's a great great thing that i will because it's like one of the core points of the book but to go back to the luck thing for just a second yeah like what what i think some people would call luck i would call being open to like opportunities yeah i was, and, I was gonna use and, that word and yeah. kind of kind of knowing knowing what you want and knowing how to go about getting it you know like yes it's, it is luck but it's also not like you were just sitting around waiting for something to drop into your lap like yeah you it's, were, it's not yeah. lottery luck it's not um blackjack luck you know it's yeah. it's not even necessarily like i mean there's probably a middle ground of luck which is the like meet a stranger on the subway and then marry them three years later luck like that's yeah yeah you have to be open for that kind of thing, and then that's that starts getting closer to what we're talking about, which is that yeah, like, like putting yourself out there and and then not saying no to the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean it's 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 luck in that there is no reproducible set of steps that will lead from point A to point B, which is what I think. Yeah, yeah, intimidates a lot of people about that kind of thing. But yeah, like you just you you approach things in a way that. I don't know, and that that makes you more likely to be in that right place at that right time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you have? Can you pull up any specific examples from the book that you that you think kind of align with our own personal narratives? Well, um, to get back to your point about, um, man, I forget what point. You're 
no, no. Just, just your point about your point about um, getting along with people. And oh, finding yeah, yeah, people yeah. And like connecting with people who are willing to invest some time in you because mm-hmm. because you are, you know, you are also making yourself available to and useful for them is um, one of the thing. One of the concessions the book does make to institutionalized learning is it kind of offers a built in community. Of yes. people who are at least in theory, you know, interested in a certain subject. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that a lot of the people in the book did to replace or, you know, to get by without institutionalized learning is you have to like reach out and form communities and like ask questions of people. Um, like there was one, there's one lady in particular who has, and I think her, her career path was probably like the biggest jump from, one thing to another but she ended up covering like the nuclear industry basically and she doesn't have like a a background like an educational background in in like physics or or any yeah yeah any kind of nuclear stuff is like she wanted to be a writer she does I, i believe she did do some undergrad stuff but she just she moved to a town that had a nuclear plant in it mm hmm and she started doing research and just like, and, and she just started like calling people and like talking to people and trying to make connections. And like, if, if there was something she didn't know, she would try and find somebody who was an expert in it and like being attentive and asking questions. And something that happens over and over again in this book that again, I don't know if it's reflective of just the interviews that were picked for it or if it's like, something that happens all the time but people are people are willing to share what they know about stuff if you're you know to an attentive audience or to an interested audience well people want to talk about themselves to be totally callous yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know and and to admit uh something about myself also like i really enjoy not in a uh i hope not in an, an egotistical way but i really i enjoy talking about my own work with someone who is interested to hear it, you know, yeah, because then yeah, it sparks exactly. an interesting conversation because you feel like you are an expert on, on yourself, even though mm-hmm. some, a lot of people aren't, <laughs> um, I would argue that most people aren't, um, <laughs> including myself, but you feel like you are. And so it's very, you, you know, you live with yourself every day. And so it's very comfortable to talk about what you know. And if someone is saying, Hey, tell me about that thing. I think you know a lot about who's going to say no to that. Uh, yeah, right. And especially if that person is also like interested in the field or knows something about like another segment of the field, then it becomes like an exchange of information. Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of the professional relationships in in the book are kind of built on is people have common interests and like overlapping fields and they kind of find each other and they um either through like email lists or through like groups that meet once a month or once a week they kind of find each other and they they form this support network that a school might otherwise, you know, provide. Yeah, and I'll say, like, I have not completely ruled grad school off the table for theater, and one of the main reasons is that, you know, the the grind of finding new work to do and new and new jobs, et cetera, can, can get a little hectic, and it can mm-hmm. actually prevent me from, and often does, from actually having time to reflect on how and what I'm doing artistically. Yeah. So that is the big draw for me 
of school is the opportunity to go to a place where it's like, hey, you got time. Let's teach you about a stuff you don't I'll teach you a lot about stuff you don't have time to think about when you're actually doing the work and to do the yeah. work in a risk friendly and failure friendly setting mm-hmm. is another thing because yes you should be allowed to to fail spectacularly but uh the the world in which commercial uh success and art intersect is not very friendly to that <laughs> Um, well, and the, and the people in the book who do have kind of a less dim view on school, um, and there aren't, I mean, there aren't very many of them, like a lot of them, a lot of them don't, they don't talk much about their schooling except to say, you know, I dropped out of high school or I went to graduate school for a year and then left or whatever. Like they, it's kind of implied that they don't, they don't think school is such a big deal because they've all gotten by without it and done fine. But, um. The people who do who did have a better experience went to less traditional yeah, schools, yeah. I think, where like like the main problem that Stark I think has with school is that it's it's very rigid. It's not very flexible. It can't account for the different ways in which people learn. Mm-hmm. Um and it's very like it's very grade driven and very like and the and the goals that it works toward are often very like artificial. Yes. Okay. And so, I, I mean, I think if, if we got to a point where there were more institutions that, that were more flexible and, you know, maybe didn't do, didn't put so much importance on grades and put more importance on learning or like got better at using grades as a way to measure learning instead of measuring like how well you can spit facts back up or whatever. Yeah. There was a, there was... I, I think she would like, a school a little bit better if that if that happened you know in more places yeah i don't know if you saw there was an article going around in the last week or two about how dumb the sat writing section is (laughs) and i'm just so happy that i never had to take it like the like write a five paragraph essay on something you've never like thought about before and you can't do any research and you can't yeah and you only have the amount of time we've given you yeah and and the people who are grading it are you know it is in their best interest to grade it within two minutes so you better use some flashy words right away and not have any grammatical mistakes or grammatical (laughs) mistakes excuse me yeah don't use the word grammatical in your sat (laughs) essay (laughs) zero points see me after class Um, one of the other things I thought was really interesting was um, like with the with the, you know, the nuclear journalist lady or there was another um, person who I think actually writes for Wired, which um, is owned by the people who own the site that I write for. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like I felt a connection or something. But um, is they just they just don't talk about their education in general. Yeah, yeah. It's like like a certain draw, at least when you go to a good school. Or like an ex- or a school that is perceived as being good is that you have the name and that people want to hear that name and it will impress them. But um, like the Wired person has, you know, she she taught people about computers for a while, like in in a school, and to get the like she didn't have. I don't I don't think she I think she was one of the ones who hadn't finished high school. I think. oh wow. But she just got 
you know, they were, they were looking for somebody, you know, they had the standard, like you need this and this degree or credentials or whatever. But when she got in for the interview, like it was, it was clear they just need somebody who really knew stuff about computers. And she did because she had kind of like learned herself and taught herself through, through working in a computer lab. Hmm. And the like principal or, or whoever it was that she was talking to didn't, realized that she didn't have those credentials until she had been doing the job for several months oh no <laughs> already um but yeah like people just at least in the experiences of the people in this book it's kind of surprising how little it comes up if you don't yourself bring it up like usually people are just looking for skills and sometimes those degrees are useful as like shorthand evidence that you have those skills or something you know yeah 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 yeah. um depending on the field education yeah is only so important on the resume and it becomes increasingly less important the further you are out of school mm-hmm. um, and, it, and the book does does admit that there are fields <clears throat> where this doesn't really work like how so where if you're like if you're in if you're in social work or anything that really does have like state mandated certifications and, and things that you need to actually practice medicine, et cetera. If, yeah. 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 Like there's, um, or, or a lot of the like harder fields, like the science and math and stuff, like it's not impossible to break in, but it's often more difficult to do the like fake it till you make it thing. Yes. I would imagine like that. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of the, I mean, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, in this book does apply to people like you and me and, and most of the people we know who did um, softer stuff and, and things where it's more analytical and more like there's not a right answer every time. Yes. Fair. You know, mm-hmm. does it account at all? I imagine, I don't know that it would, does it account at all for people who aren't really self starters? Like, I think this is sort of a Malcolm Gladwell outlier situation. Like, Speaking to your earlier com- comment that it was confirmation bias, you know, these interviews uphold the thesis, but like, what about the number of people who might not get a job were it not for college education? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the you know when it when it talks about the things that school is good for, yeah, like built in, built in social like situations where you can talk with other people who are interested in in what you want and then also um and again mostly for the good schools and not so much for the cheaper lesser known schools is the networking yeah yeah it provides um but it doesn't really address like but well yeah it's it's like it's crucial that you kind of be a self-starter and that you learn what motivates you to learn and that you follow through with stuff like uh, it's part of the book's thesis, I guess, is that schools motivations for learning are all external. Fair, fair. And there are a lot of people who don't respond well to that. But if you like if you come up on a project and you need to learn stuff specifically for that project or if there's a specific thing that you're interested in and you start reading about that thing and you you know, you keep pulling at different threads that you need to pull at to like understand that thing until you've got until you've learned about it. Yeah. Basically. Like it's 
it's about it's just as much about finding what motivates you and 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 finding out how you learn best and following through with it like if if people aren't motivated to do that then i think yeah the the premise does kind of fall apart yeah i think that's i think that's the hardest thing about this argument is it becomes a total war kind of argument or at least it sounds like a, like this the, all none of this works stop it mm-hmm. But that, yeah, it also assumes that everyone is intellectually curious enough to find what they need to find without help, you know? Yeah. Like, I think what it's really getting at is, is um, pushing back against this, this culture that I think you and I both grew up in where, like, college was kind of assumed. And yes. you went to college after high school because it was the thing you did next because it's what you needed to do. Mm-hmm. and. A lot for a lot of people, it's like you go to grad school after undergrad because it's what you need to do, and it's it's the thing that's done, and it's just it's it's more than saying that school is useless and nobody learns from it and <laughs> it doesn't do anything. It's it's just saying school is not the only way. You don't need to get into all this debt. You don't need to you don't need to suffer through this, this thing that you don't like. Like I really, and I think it's reflected in my college grades. It's like, if I'm not interested in a subject, it's not enough for me to. Yeah. I had a similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like my grades in classes I did not care for just were they just tanked. They weren't great. I just couldn't motivate myself to care enough. Like I, I did most of the reading in kind of a disinterested way. And I, paid enough attention in class that I could pull the C's or B's or whatever it was that I got. But it was only in the classes that I really liked that I got A's in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I think the core thesis of the book is that is just trying to show people who have been brought up with this, you know, college only mentality that, yeah, there is another way. And yeah, there are people who are making five figures, six figures, despite not having gone through traditional channels. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, I think that's what we really need to combat the higher education bubble is just more people who, who do recognize that it's like college isn't the be all and end all of everything. Well, and, and hopefully if that were the case, you would, you would think that the bubble would burst maybe a little bit and then, costs would deflate accordingly yeah, and things would find like a good balance eventually yeah because you know? i think right now the assumed demand you know kind of shoots everything really high mm-hmm. and because it's you know the colleges have uh a precious resource that they can give away um for exorbitant prices <laughs> and if that were kind of more evened out you might hopefully those costs would fall because I think there is a lot of value to a, especially, you know, we, we both went to a tiny school in nowhere, Ohio, where you were kind of encouraged to find new stuff that you didn't know about or really dig into something you cared about a lot. Um, and people need that people. Some people also need just a very rigid structure where they can accomplish goals that are laid out for them um, Mm -hmm. and then translate that into a job 
where they can continue doing that, you know? Yeah. And if, I mean, if that's how you learn, then I think that's, that's one of the things that the book is pushing is like, find out how you learn. And if school is how you learn and you get stuff out of it, great. Um, another, I mean, another common thread is that school is, school is often teaching you the theory of things without teaching you the practice. Like a, a, Fair common, a common criticism of liberal arts school in particular is it's, it's teaching you how to be analytical about writing. It's teaching you like technical things about art, but it's not teaching you how to make a living as an artist or how to make a living as a writer. Mm. That's fair. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I mean, I really, I guess I'm coming off as kind of negative on the whole school thing, but I, I mean, I did really like undergrad, not always for the classes, but definitely for the social interactions and like the, opportunity to be exposed to things that i would not otherwise have been yeah. exposed to yeah well i, I um, think um you know i know in your case like you were doing newspaper stuff at kenyon that had nothing to do with your classes you know mm-hmm. um which kind of set that table and a lot of the stuff a lot of the skills i use now are not necessarily skill, skills i developed in the classroom but skills i developed with people whom I'd worked with in the classroom and then was doing other things outside of it, you know? Yeah. Like especially the drama major there. Yeah. I mean, it's at a certain point you're going to be putting up a show. And at that point, a lot of what you're going to learn in the school setting is also going to apply to. Yes. The wider world. Like you're going to have to worry more. You're going to have to worry more about money. You're going to have to worry more about people's availability. Like there are, there are additional concerns in the real world that you don't really get exposed to in college yeah of course um a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you're going to go through like you 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 will learn that because you're doing it you're like doing it you're getting your hands dirty and you're You're doing it it. happen yeah just doing it just do it yeah whereas like there's not like a college course that's like okay Everybody go and find like a coffee shop that you can sell some of your art to for $25 or something, which is totally, which is something that um, one of the artists in the book did was she, she, the specific quote was like, I look at it, I look at places and I ask, you know, is there art there? And then I say, you know, if, if not, why not my art? Like she would find um, like magazines or, or, um, places that just needed somebody to to draw something up for them and she would contact them hmm. and eventually she just kind of ne- networked her way up and I, I think and she's and she's one of the people who's earning six figures right now because she's um yeah because she she's you know she's been successful in that way <laughs> i think the trickiest thing with with this whole model um is figuring out Economic, like navigating the economics of it and the like determining your self your not your self-worth but your your economic worth of your work like if it if you aren't immediately plugged into an industry and a job that you know you can reference elsewhere you know what i mean like yeah. determine a lot of that with with her in particular a lot of that was finding people who were established and basically bugging them to talk to her about, yeah, 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 yeah. about like what their experience was. And I was really struck by throughout the book. I mean, how much 
a lot of the stuff kind of resembles almost an apprenticeship yes. kind of a thing yes. where you're just finding people who are established and you're learning directly from them. Yeah, I mean, and you don't you don't come out of it with the piece of paper, but you do come out of it with the skills that you need to succeed in whatever industry you've chosen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, I know a couple people like that, and it, yeah. it is very and the, it, what's when that works the best, you end up having those people's voices in your head when you are out doing whatever you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and that's useful. I mean, it and I think that goes back to the the most impactful professors I had are ones that I had some sort of personal relationship with, you know? Mm-hmm. Like and similarly in the real world, like the people I've learned the most from are the people with whom there's been some sort of mutual personal investment. Yeah. So, I take what they impart to me differently than Yo, some yabo that <laughs> stood behind a lectern and said something, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, I mean that's 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 most of what the book is is just like finding out how you learn best, make connections with people who are already doing what you want to do, you know, not being afraid to approach the experts and and just and learn on the go. And and there are some elements also of you know, like we talked about with the with the girl or the woman who was a teacher was the fake it till you make it thing. And um, I think the euphemism that they used is stretch the truth, like <laughs> perhaps pass your qualifications off as better than they actually are secure in the knowledge that you learn on your feet. Yes. And you know that you'll be able to grow into whatever the job is. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean, that's advice that I've given a few people who you know, wanted to be writers is like, don't, don't let the listed requirements for the job scare you from applying, like just apply and let them figure out whether you're qualified or not. Yeah. 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 You know, were there any stories of even minor, uh, bumps in the road in the book? Like any, not outright failures because obviously we wouldn't be talking to those people in this book <laughs> but like any uh things that you know potentially waylaid them on their quest to glory you know not really and that you know that get that gets back to that gets back to what i said at the top of the show about confirmation bias is yeah. you know i have no way of knowing that in the other like 70 interviews or whatever that she didn't use why they weren't used. Like if they were, if they were not used because they didn't make the point she was trying to make, or if they were not used because she didn't think they were, um, they were, I don't know, saying what, what she wanted to say in like the best way possible. But I mean, she, she did set out to talk to people who had found success following their own path. I guess what I was, what I would be interested to know, and maybe there's small instances of in this in the book that just don't jump out to you as this, but like, where along the way did these people maybe hit a stumbling block and kind of recalibrate and reassess like what they were up to, and then see that next opportunity? You know what I mean? 
Like, yeah, I mean, often, often in this book, those moments are the are the ones where they decide to give up on school. Oh, okay, all right. Is um, there was one, there was one guy who he actually loved undergrad, and he wanted to go on to become like a Nietzsche scholar and just like be in academia forever. And yeah. that's what he thought he wanted to do. And he got to the point where he was talking about it with somebody who was actually at, you know, a professor at the school he wanted to go. And he found out that if he was going to be a Nietzsche scholar, he would have to like know German and he didn't know German. And that was kind of a setback. Oh no. <laughs> so, but the story does not end with him mastering German and then becoming a Nietzsche scholar. No, it it ends with him like, he realizes that he can learn about the stuff and read the stuff and enjoy the stuff outside of the context of a classroom because he knows he wants to. Yeah. You know? And, um, yeah. So a lot of the times in, in this particular book with these particular interviewees who, as we have discussed, are probably biased in favor of not school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that moment of stepping back and reevaluating usually comes when they realize that they're not getting what they want out of the school system. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I would, I would, it's not a hard read and you can jump around between interviews as you want. Cause a lot of the time they're driving home kind of the same general points. Oh about, yeah. 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 About finding a community and, and being open to opportunity and, you know, talking to people in a know. Um, I would recommend it to even people who are already kind of making it, at, you know, on their own without, without like graduate level education. Yeah. But especially to people who are in a more arts oriented field who are, con who are really conflicted about whether to go back or not, because I think there are a lot of people like that. Like they're not, they're not where they want to be. And the only way forward that they can see is is more school going back to school yeah. and i mean i I think we both know some people like that yeah so. yeah yeah well so for those people i think it's it's pretty enlightening it, it can be encouraging to see other people succeeded even if it's sometimes preaching to the choir um sometimes telling you stuff that seems a little self-evident you know mm. yeah all right so you liked it I liked it fine. <laughs> well, it it spoke to me as somebody who has kind of made my way forward in the way that a lot of people in the book have made their way forward. Well, there you go. Yeah, because I like I had a classics degree, but I went in for IT because it was something I had taught myself, and then from there, my interest in tech and my interest in writing, like I don't know, just combined to make this job that I like kind of a lot. Well, so. and at this point, you've you've basically rendered school moot. You know, yeah. Like I, I wouldn't go back. I don't think I have to go back. I'm, I'm pretty secure where I am, and I've at this point, if I, if I were to need to get another job, I would go to the network of people who I've, yeah, who who I've been building for the last like two years before I would go. Oh, I gotta. I guess I gotta go to J school now because. Yeah. I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> well, and I, I think too, since you're already plugged into a news cycle and and all sorts of stuff, it would be, it would it might be detrimental to take yourself out of that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Craig. And thank you, you the listener. <laughs> thanks you uh, for listening. Uh, That's not very grammatical. A couple, a couple people 
on our Facebook page, we're talking about sending in uh, some comments, RE, grad school, and higher education. And if you've listened to this podcast and you still have those thoughts or you have those thoughts now that you've listened to this podcast, uh, we'd love to hear them and we'll probably talk about them on the next show. So you can email those to overduepod at gmail.com. You can tweet them at overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Um, we'd really love to kind of get some feedback on this because I think a lot of our listeners and, and friends who listen probably have some interesting opinions. I'd I'd specifically like to hear from anybody who did go and kind of can't imagine doing what they're doing now without having gone to grad school. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I would like to get that, the other that side. Is the viewpoint, that is the viewpoint not represented. Yes. <laughs> In between the three sources of information, uh, the two of us and the book, uh, we do not have someone to speak for grad school. Uh, so hit us up. Um, we also have a webpage up at overduepodcast.com. And on that webpage, we have the current episode. Um, we have a catalog of past episodes. It's getting bigger all the time. And we have um, link Amazon links to the books that we will be reading usually over the next two weeks. I think I think we're going to be able to get back on that horse Hopefully. this week because I know what I'm going to be reading next for once. Uh-oh. <laughs> if you want to read along or if you want to get one of the books that we've talked about because you think it sounds interesting, um, use those links, uh, click them, and then buy the books on Amazon that way because we get a tiny cut from Amazon, which helps defray hosting costs and uh, the mental anguish that we experiencing that we are experiencing by by reading all these books. Um, we also have links to our RSS feed, which you can use to subscribe to the show in any podcast thing that you use. Yeah. And we also have an iTunes link for those of you who are locked into Apple's ecosystem. You can click that. Um, you can also rate and review us up there, which really helps the show out in the rankings and helps uh, find us a wider audience. And uh, I think that's the whole spiel. That's our right? whole spiel. It's, it's a yeah. big spiel. Um, do you know what you're going to be reading next week? No clue. Okay. Well, Craig will figure that out and we will get it up on overduepodcast.com. Until then, uh, try to be happy. Everybody.